Welcome to What I See, the podcast where we uncover the stories of visionaries, innovators, and entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore the big ideas and challenges shaping our future. And now, our hosts Mark O'Donnell and Lewis Schiff. Hey, Lewis. Welcome to the show and happy 2023. So let's just jump in. Let's talk a little bit about your resolutions. Let's talk a little bit about this is what people are thinking about here in January. So let's talk a little bit about that. Now, are you like most people who set resolutions? What does the end of your planning year look like or the beginning of your planning for next year look like? Well, you know, so you and I are people who work with entrepreneurs and we, we obviously a lot of what you want to do with entrepreneurs is sort of control the chaos and introduce order and planning is, is the way you do that. And so um, I, I am constantly working on what we call in here at Birthing Giants one year from today. So I am, my New Year's resolution is constantly like locked down and crystal clear because I'm always working on the one year from today concept which I revisit every six months. So I walk, mm-hmm. I walk into the new year with a pretty clear idea of what I want to accomplish in that year, which I can tell you if, if you're interested. But how about you? Are you a New Year's resolution guy? You know, I, I did it once, and that was to give up drinking Coke. I would just have like seven cups of Coca-Cola, and I said, I'm no longer going to do that. The sugar is killing me. And so my one-year resolution about... 20 years ago now was to stop drinking Coca-Cola and I replaced it with coffee. And now I drink six or seven cups of coffee. Right. I mean, it's a little better because at least it's not 100% manufactured. That's right. At least it's a little bit natural. But what I typically do, I want to say for the last five years, the I usually take off a few, basically the last 10 days of the year. Mm -hmm. And I do two things. I read the book Essentialism by Greg McEwen. And the reason for that, it's the discipline pursuit of less but better. And so I just find that I'm not a very good essentialist. And so I'm reminding myself to to say no to more things, to just simplify my life down. And I think that puts me in just a, a great mindset for then the second part of my planning. So I read that book in the last 10 days. Then I create my one-year plan and I update the vision for uh, my personal vision traction organizer, how we use uh, the tool here at EOS. And I reset that and create my 90-day goals, my one-year plan, update all that, put my three-year picture out a little bit further, cross off all the bucket list, lifetime wish list things that that I have and get rocking and rolling. I take a look at my habits, if they're positive, not positive, and I suppose you call those a little bit of resolutions. That there's yeah, wow, that sounds there, like but... more than, that sounds like, that sounds tremendous. Now, <laughs> the listeners of this podcast will continue to benefit from the fact that Mark is a serious reader, a reader of business books, and I'm sure other types of books, more so than I am. I have written a few books, but I almost cannot pollute my brain with business books because um, whenever you're writing a book, you don't want to know about other people's concepts. It leaks into your work. Mm-hmm. Not right or wrong. It's just sort of for me, I cannot pollute my brain with other people's ideas. I know that it, it plagues me later. You know. Are you writing any books now? I am. I'm writing my fifth book. I take about five years per book. This one's kind of on schedule. 
So mm-hmm. 20, 20, this is 25 years of book writing and I'm into my fifth book. So it's sort of on schedule and I do it very slowly and painfully. And I make sure that everyone around me who loves me feels this pain as well. <laughs> Tremendous pain when Lewis is writing a book. And if, right. so, so in other words, what you're saying is for the last 25 years, you put everyone in a lot of pain because <laughs> you're always I writing a book. I guess that makes sense. Yes, that, that explains a lot now that I think of it. And it also explains the Grinch and so many other things. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. Now, can you share what your next book is, is about or is it under wraps? Yeah. No, no, it's, uh, I can. It's, it's something that's original. And I have very few original ideas, but I have one around every, approximately every five years. And so this one is, is based on a, a conference we run out of Oxford University called Moonshots and Moneymakers. What it's really about is how businesses, especially the kind of businesses you and I know and love, we'll talk a lot about, which are sort of small to mid-sized, privately owned, privately run entrepreneurial businesses. And I'm not talking about venture capital, Silicon Valley, anything. I'm talking about businesses that are starting in small towns everywhere. They have access to technology like they never have. And the world, meaning their customers, are craving for them to add technology to their business. So, you know, there's a kind of a saying, every business is a technology business now. Mm -hmm. And so the book is about, and and the conference at Oxford is about, how do we change the game in our business by thoughtfully incorporating technology. Nothing stops anyone from doing it. You don't need Silicon Valley's millions to do it anymore. And so you can have what would have ordinarily been a pretty ordinary, let's say business to business services kind of a business. And now it must be informed by technology. And the the rewards, meaning the money that will come your way through an exit or whatever, um, are, are huge. There's a a war chest of about a trillion dollars waiting to be deployed for companies that build really thoughtful business models. And when I say the words really thoughtful business model, you kind of can't build a really thoughtful business model without incorporating technology. So how does a moneymaker become a moonshot? How does a good business become one of those killer businesses that has infinite scale through the thoughtful incorporation of technology to the point where a buyer would pay you 10 times revenue or all those sort of magical numbers we hear about. That's what the book's mm-hmm. about. And who is controlling that, that trillion dollars? Like primarily who has that trillion dollars that they're putting to use? Yeah. So it starts, it's not even a trillion. It's, it's more like 3 trillion. And I'll tell mm-hmm. you why it's a trillion dollars of money that is in the hands of private equity funds, yeah. family offices too. Now think about it. If you've ever been involved, as I think you have <laughs> with, with companies being bought by private equity, they lever up. So for every dollar of cash they put in, they might borrow one, two, three, four dollars. So even if it's a trillion dollars of cash, even at a one-to-one leverage ratio, that becomes two trillion dollars, okay? And then throw on top of that, all of the corporate M&A out there, all of the corporate, you know, the bigger companies that have funds that they've assembled to buy companies as well. I'll call that another trillion dollars. So it really, it's like $3 trillion waiting to buy what turns out to be about 20,000 companies that kind of fit the bill. Mm-hmm. $3 trillion deployed, pointing at about 20,000 companies. But you, but you can't, you don't, you aren't entitled to one twenty thousandth of the $3 trillion. It's, it's, you know, the spoils go to the victor. So the companies that will get, more than their fair share of that three trillion are the ones that come up with the best business models. Everything I'm talking about, I know you know about through your work with the OS. 
Yeah. So you are doing everything that I'm talking about. Yeah, for sure. And you know, what, what comes to mind when you say, you know, most of this money is in the hands of private equity. Okay, fine. But there, there, we also have a world in which baby boomers, as we all know, the largest generation in American history, they are retiring this year, basically. And a lot of them own businesses and they're, they're typically nuts and bolts type businesses. They're HVAC companies and plumbing companies and all those types of, of organizations that they've built. And now you have a private equity who's going to buy them out. Hmm. Now, what I, what I've been seeing and, and thinking about is, okay, so you, you're now going to own an HVAC company, say in Dallas, Texas, which I happen to have had. And, and private equity is going to go buy these baby boomers who are re- retiring, buy them out. They're going to leverage technology. They're going to use AI. They're going to use machine learning. And what they're going to do is push out everyone who is not leveraging technology, who don't have the capabilities. And so what you end up with is PE owned HVAC company who understands that the price of copper six, you know, right now I'm going to go buy all the materials. I'm going to go buy all the equipment. I'm going to corner the supply. And I know that because the price of copper has gone up and supply is going to tighten. And well, now that everyone else can't even get materials to go do the job. So I think it's super important that, Technology, which is available to everyone, is democratized such to the point that you can, you know, someone can just go and hire someone for very low cost to set up a, a machine learning and AI purchasing system so that you can participate in that. Otherwise, you got no shot. I don't well, that's think the, that's the issue, right? So you may say, oh, I'm not really interested in exiting. I don't really want private equity money in my business. And those are all extremely legitimate. And guys like me and probably guys like you would defend your decision to stay independent as long as you want. However, there is still a massive amount of money pointed at all the other businesses in your space. So are you prepared to compete with a company that has all that money, has all that technology backing them up? That's that's the uh, that's the big you know decision that a lot of entrepreneurs have to make as we get into the stage this demographic trend that you're talking about. And and do you think that they can legitimately compete? Well, yes, because you know there's high touch businesses. There's there's just so I, let me say this: I hope they can compete because this is sort of a topic I wanted to talk about with you is, you know, are we in a recession? Aren't we in a recession? You and I aren't, aren't economists. We don't have to become the smartest guys in the room. But what I know from the hundred or so business owners that I speak to regularly, and you do, I'm sure, is that they make these tiny incremental changes every day to their businesses to respond to the world, like the copper example. They're mm-hmm. constantly making little changes in their businesses. So when I think about and not to get on some sort of patriotic U.S. soapbox, but when I think about a resilient kind of diverse economy like the U.S. versus, let's say, a more centrally planned one like China, I just think we've we've got to be better. It has to be a better way to do things because there are so many inputs, so many things change regularly. And you and I know the thousands of entrepreneurs who respond to that change in the moment, in the day, and they're constantly re- responding. And I believe that 
whatever kind of recession or whatever challenges are happening, if you believe that the Fed has done this in order to do that, that that gigantically diverse and resilient economy led by entrepreneurs is kind of making little daily changes every single day. And so that's the real world. And then you have this whole thing of roll-ups. You have this whole thing of private equity rolling up, let's say, all these HVAC businesses, for example. So who wins? The bigger the bigger kind of more centrally planned private equity-driven HVAC company or the hundred smaller ones that are competing with it? It's a great mm -hmm. fight, and I hope we have it forever. Oh, we'll definitely have it forever. And I'm just wondering, with leveraging technology, if, if you were not able to democratize the use of especially AI and machine learning to be available to the one of the hundred small HVAC companies where the competition is, what I would suspect is that those big roll-ups are, are using that tech. We know that they are. And they are adaptable. They're moving just as fast at scale as a company that's small. And so from my perspective, that human touch that do the things, go the places that a big roll-up won't be able to, but you still got to be able to move just as intelligently, just as quickly as someone who's leveraging technology. Right. And Lewis, With I'm sure things. you... Yeah. With other skills, like Michael Porter from Harvard talks about, you know, the three things that win and one of them's high touch, one of them's technology, one's cost. And there's always a place. There's always going to be a lot of customers in the Dallas area who want to work with their HVAC guy. And that's why that person's in business. But that HVAC guy is not going to terribly use technology, or at least they'll use it, you know, far after it's, it's introduced. And they will have great relationships with their clients. They probably don't have a sellable business. But that may not be important to them. It may produce a, a you know, nice, a really great living for them. Right. And then, of course, the issue becomes is, yep, you might want to work with your, you have that you have that personal relationship, but they can't get the materials in order to do the job. Right. But because you're someone is for that at that point, you know. Yes, because someone's cornered it and they predicted way better than than you can without the the tools. So, you know, you're going to end up hiring the the big guy just because they have what you want at a price that's better. Well, or, or, because actually in the HVAC example, I happen to know this one, yeah. or the HVAC company says, we've got this copper, and not only do we want to use it, we could actually start selling it to the other HVAC companies. And, and that's mm -hmm. a new business for us to be in. And sure. they can move up or down the food chain, you know, and I do, I know people who, needed a lot of what, what, what was it it was steel or something and it was hvac what was it that that was sheet metal sheet metal and they ended up you know using so much sheet metal that they said hey we're pretty good at buying storing and distributing sheet metal why don't we op open a, a sheet metal distribution business mm -hmm. i mean this is the beauty of entrepreneurship like they're yeah. so damn clever it just never stops you know? it never stops I, and I've said this to you before, but I think entrepreneurs are like electricity and water. They just flow to the path of least resistance and you can't stop it. Yes. It's just not. And, and here in the United States, we sort of have this entrepreneurial DNA that can't be stopped as much as people might like to try. <laughs> yeah, for sure.
So I applaud your New Year's resolutions. It's funny, mine are a little bit similar on the business front is I have always prided myself on like doing a thousand things in a year Mm -hmm. and like the volume of things I can accomplish. And I've decided, you know, referring to your essentialism, I've decided I want to do much less this year. I would like to do it better, but more than anything, I would like to be much more present for it. Again, you and I, so we, we haven't formally introduced ourselves to our, our listeners yet. We should. No, I suppose we haven't. <laughs> because we have awesome, awesome jobs. Like, I love my job, which is primarily that my client is the same client as yours. It's an entrepreneur of somebody who runs what I call a going concern, right? Which is a business of substance. You know, they've got 10 or 100 or 1,000 employees. They've got buildings, clients, vendors. It all, it's a, sometimes I refer to it as, what uh, is referred to in uh, by, by Fiddler, by Tevia in Fiddler on the Roof as the full catastrophe. It got the full <laughs> That's catastrophe. A good, yeah. They do. They do indeed. <laughs> and they love it. It gives, it gives them their identity. It makes them mm-hmm. important in their communities. It makes them want to be philanthropic. It makes them want to be connected to politics or you know how things are changing mm-hmm. in their communities. And we love these people. We love how engaged they are, how smart they are, how creative they are, how brave they are. So for me, that reveals itself in this business called Birthing of Giants, where we teach about 100 entrepreneurs a year how to build bigger and better businesses. And tell us about your business, Mark, and how you interface with that awesome population. Yeah, so we we definitely have the same people that we feel we've been put on this earth to serve, that entrepreneurial owner. And The way I do that is I'm the visionary, the CEO, if you will, of a company called EOS Worldwide. EOS stands for the Entrepreneurial Operating System. It was really popularized by Gino Wickman, who's our founder, and in the book Traction. And we've sold, I think at this point, over 2 million copies. And then we have the Traction Library, which is like 2.5 million copies sold. So we've to date helped about 17,000 companies implement our, our tools that are detailed in traction. And we really help them do three things. It's very, very simple, practical tools, and it helps them that, that entrepreneur, that visionary leader owner, clarify their vision, get really, really crystal clear on what it is that they want from their business, but perhaps most importantly, get their leadership team 100% on the same page with that vision. Because we know that entrepreneurs have all this stuff going on in our heads and we want all these things and we think we're singing beautiful music and we <laughs> get really, really frustrated when everyone else is like, what is this guy doing? Like, he's just crazy. So we work really hard to get the leadership team 100% on the same page with that vision, where they're going, how they're going to get there. The second thing is traction. It's really about creating discipline and accountability necessary to execute on every aspect of that vision. And so we have tools and concepts and mindsets to drive accountability throughout an organization, but it all starts with the leadership team. Then finally, healthy is creating really healthy, cohesive, and functional leadership teams because as goes that leadership team, really so goes the rest of the organization. And so that's what we do all day, every day. Um, We have over 600 EOS implementers, and these are, we call them business coaches, who are working with those leadership teams to implement these tools. Again, as I said, 17,000 companies we've worked with directly and another 
10 times that who have just taken the books and are dabbling and using the tools on their own yeah. and, and doing pretty well. So that, that's what we do. That's what we obsess about. And it's very, very simple execution driven stuff. Yeah. And so what we thought about Mark and I were talking, and I want to talk more about how I know Mark in a minute, but Mark and I were talking, you know, we are at the top of a, of a information flow because we talk to hundreds or thousands of entrepreneurs. We see the research about what's driving an entrepreneurial economy. We hear from a lot of the people in our world about what it's like to work with entrepreneurs. And we see a lot of the failures, a lot of the successes. And we want to talk about that with everyone. And we want to introduce you, listeners, the, the, the viewers, to those people, the really interesting entrepreneurs we get to meet now and then, because they're kind of what we, we started. They are innovating every single day. They are, and Mark calls them visionaries, and we'll call them visionaries a lot in this podcast. Mark, they are people who, their gift is that they can kind of see over the hill a little bit earlier than other people. And they're willing to kind of execute against what they see. And then they have maybe five or 50 people behind them that help them execute. And they kind of spend all day long saying, here's what I see, kind of turning back, shouting it back to those people. Here's what I see. Here's what I think we need to do. And those 50 people say, I don't see what you see, but you've been right two or three times before and you pay my paycheck. I think I'll do what you tell me to do. But their role is is to see things before other people see them and then do something about it. And that's sort of, a wonderful group of people who have a wonderful dialogue that we want to bring them into with this podcast. Yeah. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. So this is our sort of introductory podcast. We, we are not going to bring on any of those awesome visionaries, innovators, entrepreneurs in this particular episode, but I, we just want to introduce ourselves to you. I want to tell you that uh, I want to share how I met Mark and how Mark ended up at EOS, or, but he should tell the story, of course. I met Mark when I ran, so I wrote a book called The Middle Class Millionaire, which kind of looked at how entrepreneurs are, well, they are often middle class millionaires, which is to say their their value system comes from where they came from. They came from the middle class, as most of us do, but they went on to have this outsized success. They were one of the you know 10% of the population that sort of gets traction, that gets a business that works, puts some dollars in their pocket. And I wrote this book about middle-class millionaires. And I had a chance to present it to the management of Inc. Magazine, our favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. And the next thing I knew, Inc. Magazine and I were starting a community together. The community that was designed to attract people who are called the owners of Inc. 5000 companies. So these are private companies that were growing rapidly and they would they would tell Inc. how fast they were growing. And if they were growing fast enough, they made the Inc. 5000 list, 5,000 companies, private companies that were growing rapidly. And that is an amazing group of people. And I started to build a community called the Inc. Business Owners Council. Pretty straightforward. We meet once a month, bring some speakers in, but essentially connect business owners, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but you have to understand that business owners don't often hang out with other business owners. They, they tend to work with their employees, they work with their customers, they work with their vendors. Obviously, they spend time with their families. There's not that much time left over for them to be with each other. So I, we created at Inc. that little community. Mark O'Donnell was one of those business owners. So Mark, mm -hmm. just pick it up from here, how you got involved with the Business Owners Council and how it led you to EOS. 
Yeah, as with most things, it's my brother's fault. Tommy is going to be well. He'll probably come on here at some point, but Tommy we should will have be him. like an un, unseen voice in so much of this. Yeah, he he has the nickname the Leprechaun because he just appears places and disappears places, and he's in and out all the time. Maybe he's searching for the end of the rainbow. Who knows? So yeah, he he just randomly signed up to because he, he's reading Inc. Magazine again, just like you said, like most entrepreneurs tend to do. And he saw an ad in the magazine for Inc. Business Owners Council, and we we signed up. We actually arrived at our first meeting separately wearing the exact same thing. So you got these two <laughs> brothers wearing the exact same stuff show up. So I guess we were a little bit of a crowd pleaser there. But we, we joined the council, and it is definitely a lonely journey as an entrepreneur because there's just not very many people who are as crazy as you, as risk-taking as you, as driven as you. And so surrounding yourself with these people, you, you tend to have a lot of good, good times. So join the the council, met all those the great speakers that Lewis and, and Inc. brought brought in. And there, there were some fun times throughout those years. And then my business partners came, and I think there was four of us in the in the business yep. owners council for, for quite a few years. And you are the reason that I ended up at EOS or even sold my businesses. And so you had an event at the Pentagon along with another EOS implementer, Jonathan Smith, who I didn't know at the time. And you just made an introduction say, hey, there's this guy, you know, he does these things. We, I think we had nine companies at the time. And so yeah, it was just total. Yeah, it was just total chaos. I mean, it was successful. I think we might have been on the Inc list three times at that time. You introduced us to Jonathan. We started implementing EOS and that's, you know, that's the first time I heard about EOS was at the Pentagon having lunch <laughs> with a three-star general. <laughs> so I have to tell that Pentagon story. So I, I was doing a pre-Pentagon site visit. You know, you guys, there's going to be a lot of you coming down. So I went down like a month before to meet with my contact. And I drove my rental car up to the Pentagon's, you know, security guard shack. And I said, where's the visitor's parking lot? And the guy who's in full uniform with the rifle comes out and says, there is no visitor's parking lot. This is the Pentagon. <laughs> Nobody visits the Pentagon. <laughs> <laughs> he made me do a U-turn and leave. And then I had to like go park at a mall and then like run across a highway to get there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and that was a great visit. That was a great visit. Yeah, that that was. I mean, it was. Uh, and we met with a small business advisor in the Obama administration, I think, at the White House. And yeah. so that that was my introduction to to EOS. And you know, really, the rest of my story of how I got here was that stemmed from that that visit. I just really fell in love with. I was already in love with other entrepreneurs in the way we had our business model structure. We would really enable other people to start their businesses as, as part of our as part of our strategy. And learning the tools of EOS, gaining that clarity, it's sort of like we teach the things that we need the most ourselves. I ended up exiting the company that my brother and I built and became an EOS implementer. A little overlap there. Worked with a little over 100 companies, over 500 full-day sessions, and it was time to build something and it was you know the beginning stages of of covid and i was presented with the opportunity to step into the visionary role here at eos worldwide and i've been having fun for the last two plus years so it's been good 
So, yeah, so you and I are super lucky. A lot of people like love the work we do. We get to travel. We spend time with entrepreneurs everywhere we go. And these entrepreneurs that you and I both love are really dynamic people. They've got a few dollars in their pockets. So you could usually say, hey, let's go have some fun. And they can usually back it up. And so I know that with entrepreneurs, I've been from everywhere from Davos, the World Economic Forum, to Burning Man, to, I mean, I went to the Pentagon. I mean, I've had a ton of fun serving entrepreneurs. I get together with a pretty big group of entrepreneurs about seven or eight times a year, and I run a kind of a conference for them. So I, I'm very connected to what they're going through right now and where they're headed. And there have been huge changes in the 15 or so years I've been doing this um, that have to do with, I think have to do with that that giant pile of money we talked about at the beginning, you know, because entrepreneurs are at the end of the day here to sort of take things, you know, kind of shape them up into something more valuable than they are. And then not necessarily exit, but, but that's sort of, even if they don't do it, it's on their minds. And that pile of money has, has really, and the pile of money plus technology has utterly transformed entrepreneurship in the past decade. It absolutely has, and especially the valuations that people are getting. It wasn't too long ago where you heard of a $100 million exit, and everyone was like, well, how did that happen? Yeah. Now it's sort of, we've become a little bit desensitized to the amounts that entrepreneurs are getting when they're selling their business. And it's a little bit like the the moonshots and money makers and and taking a multiple of EBITDA of profits versus of revenue because of those business model shifts. Yeah. But it's also because there's a lot of dollars competing for very few businesses that are are viable and scalable and have some sort of infinite component to it. And you know, business has gotten a lot easier and more complicated. So it's a lot easier in the sense that. I remember when I started in business, being able to take a credit card was a big deal. You filled out forms, they gave you these machines, you had to get approved, you could easily like lose their trust if something bad happened. And now, like no no BS, you and I could get a credit card account by the end of this phone call. And we can get incorporated by the end of this phone call. We can get an EIN number by the end of this phone call, a website by the end of the day. And yep. we can be connected to an entire e-commerce shopping system through Shopify by the end of the day. So that's gotten much, much, much easier. What's gotten harder is that you can no longer think locally. You must think globally. You simply cannot wait for other people to, to solve technological problems. You have to be thinking about them too. In fact, you guys had a great idea. I remember this. It was very innovative. I hope it's okay to share it. There was a point where the iPad was brand new. Yeah. Brand, brand oh, yeah. new. And everybody was so turned on by this like slate of computing. Mm -hmm. And you guys at your company before EOS, you sent iPads to your clients mm -hmm. with your app on it. Now, of course, mm -hmm. they could do anything. They could play solitaire and they could surf the web, play games, but you put your app on it. And that was, it was a really interesting way to say we are a technology company. So we're all always thinking about how to step into this infinite future together. Yeah. And, and I will say, so just to, to give the end of the story for, for that, we, we absolutely did that. We had it developed. And our whole idea was to, and this really came from Michael Gerber and in, in myth to productize a service. And we were in the, in the pharma industry and we were probably 
10 years early, that'd be an acceptable way to purchase services because, you know, this was 2010, like iPad just came out. We, one of the, one of the, you know, this is like iPad one that we were sending to people, but whatever the first one that had apps on it. And people were just so used to a complex procurement process. They were very used to the human interaction. And so our buyer was a, a, a little older. They were not digital natives. Yeah. And they were like, well, I'm just going to hire someone. and I'm going to charge, you know, you're going to bill me per hour. So it ultimately failed. But we did learn a lot through that, that process, really about the buyings. About and about the, change management. About change management, too. I mean, we were trying to get them from like handwriting text to pushing a button on an iPad. And that was for professional services, for an engineer to show up, do work, and produce a report in this particular case. It was so foreign to our buyer, they didn't, it didn't work. It was a good idea, but it did work. <laughs> that was all good ideas. My, yeah. my friend says, you, you want to get in on the first floor. You don't want to get in on the basement. Oh, we we were in the sub basement <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yep. We're all great innovators are. So yeah. we are now about 30 minutes in. We wanted to start our podcast off by introducing ourselves to you, Lewis Schiff and Mark O'Donnell. We we hope that you'll find interesting that we want to talk about the innovators, the visionaries, the entrepreneurs we know, and how they are changing the world and how they are a very special group of people that Mark and I have the great, great privilege to spend time with all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, will, we, will ba- we will be back with our next podcast when we are ready to introduce you to these other folks that we know and that have really important things to say. Mark, what do we want to share with our, our community as we exit out? Well, we, we hope that along the, the journey, you get some good ideas, maybe some bad ideas to test <laughs> out on, on clients who aren't ready for it. And you, you can learn and grow and join us in the, in the journey of entrepreneurship. It's a wonderful journey that we want to take you on. Fabulous. See you all soon. And thanks, Mark, for joining us on this maiden voyage. Thanks, Lewis. Thanks for listening to another episode of What I See, where we explore the stories of the visionaries shaping our world. We hope you found inspiration and insights from our guests. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode and continue to be a part of the conversation. See you next time on What I See.